Everyone here to Gospel of Grace. We'll begin by prayer and then we'll get started. So it's good to see everybody here this morning. All of your faces, sunshiny faces. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for what you've done for us through the cross of Christ, that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have fellowship, that we're partakers of the new covenant, and that you're coming again, Lord. We pray as we look at the book of Revelation this morning that you would excite us about the great plan that you have in throwing down Satan but catching us up to your throne. We pray that you would help us to think well upon this text. Help us to be good interpreters of the passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin by explaining a little bit why I'm going to be doing this topic. We've been going through Proverbs. I finished Proverbs chapter 4 last week. But I had introduced this topic last week, and I've been impressed with the way Bob has been throwing out some doctrinal issues and letting the church kind of help uh, look through any weaknesses of our position here at Gospel of Grace by his research through Acts chapter 20. And I wanted to do the same thing with Revelation chapter 12. And what I'm going to do is lay out an interpretation of who the male child is in Revelation chapter 12. And we'll talk about the relationship of that interpretation with the traditional one. And what I'm going to do is throw it out to you. And if you see holes in the position, you can certainly uh, push back. I would welcome that. This is something I will be at some point teaching in my Eschatology YouTube channel. And you can see the title there, End Times with Pastor Eric. Now, let me just explain why I think this topic is important. You might think, well, at the end of the day, who cares what child it is in Revelation chapter 12? Well, the reason I think it's important is if I can make the case that the child that's being caught up by the way the term is harpazo, the same term for the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, if I can prove that that's happening at the second coming, it's important because at the same time, Satan is going to be thrown down to the earth. Remember, remember, amillennialists and postmillennialists believe that Satan was thrown down due to the first advent of Christ. So by me showing that this is actually a rapture passage, not an ascension passage, I'm going to be proving that Satan will be thrown down to the earth, not at the first coming of Christ, but at the second coming. And so what we're going to see is that the destruction of Satan, there's a process. First thing is that when Satan launched allegations against Christians... Prior to the cross, you might say that they had some merit. There was no atonement that had been made. But certainly after the cross, according to Colossians 2.15, those allegations were nailed to the cross. And so Satan can rail in the heavenly realm against Christians, accusing us before the Father of being lawbreakers, and yet the payment has been paid in full. And so his allegations are moot. They're, They're without merit. Now, that's what happened at the cross, but there's further destruction of Satan that awaits the future. What I believe will happen is when we're caught up to meet the Lord in heaven, the bride of Christ, Satan ends up being thrown down in what's called the parousia. That's the technical term for the coming of Christ. So at the beginning of the parousia, we go up, Satan goes down. After the parousia, the 70th week of Daniel, remember the last seven years... Satan will also be bound in the abyss, and then Christ reigns on the earth for a thousand years. After that a thousand-year millennial kingdom, Satan will be let out, it says in Revelation 20, verse 3, to lead one final catastrophic battle called the Battle of Gog and Magog. It'll be the most lopsided battle in history. The Lord Jesus will call fire down upon his enemies. He will then sentence Satan to the lake of fire or hell, forevermore, which he will never get out. My point is from the time of the cross, Satan goes down, 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 and down, but it's a process. It doesn't all happen at the first advent of Christ. It's all made possible by the first advent of Christ. But the rest of the throwing down of Satan occurs at the second advent, and that's what I'll be showing, and it's key to our debate with amillennialists and postmillennialists. And so that's why I think this is important. So I I apologize a little bit. The font may be a little smaller than you're used to because I use this to instruct 
via the YouTube channel in which you can get away with smaller fonts. So with that, let's begin with the debated text that we're wrestling with here. And you can see before I even read it, we have the woman in purple, the child in blue, and the dragon in red. So I color-coded this, hopefully helpfully for you. Revelation 12, 1 through 4, notice John says this. He says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in, in pain to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. So let's stop here and let's unpack the imagery of... Oh, I'm sorry, let me pull up my pointer. I like having a pointer. Notice the woman, the child, and the dragon. Remember, one of the accusations that I think are false leveled against the book of Revelation is that the book of Revelation, some skeptics say, is so filled with symbols that who can really ever come to a true interpretation? I reject that. I think the book of Revelation is very clear. When it comes to the symbols in the book of Revelation, John either explicitly tells you what the symbol means. In fact, regarding the red dragon, he says later in verse 9 of Revelation 12, it's Satan. Um, As Bob once said, if you come up with a different interpretation than does the apostle or Jesus... You're wrong, <laughs> right? So if someone says the red dragon isn't Satan, they're wrong because John says it's Satan. If, if John does not give you the identity of the symbol, he alludes to an Old Testament passage that will clearly tell you what the identity of the symbol is. And so we see that with the woman. In fact, let's begin with the woman and define what this woman is. We can come to a true, true interpretation Notice the woman is clothed with what? The sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head there was a crown of 12 stars. This is an obvious allusion to Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. Remember, this is the dream that made Joseph's brothers jealous of him because in the vision that he has given to him by God, this dream, the Every, the, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars, because remember, he's the 12th, they're bowing down to him, yes. right? Because why? Because he's going to be elevated providentially by God to a leadership position in Egypt to protect Israel ultimately from famine, right? Well, but let's turn to it. Let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 39.10, excuse me, 37 verse 9. It extends into verse 10. I didn't write verse 10 down. Maybe someone could finish that. But Genesis 37.9. Again, Genesis chapter 37, verse 9. And again, this is talking about Joseph's dream. Notice here in Genesis 37, verse 9, it says, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers. That was a mistake. (laughs) And said, uh, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. So, of course, the sun is Israel, the moon is Rachel, and the 11 stars, of course, are what? Those are his brothers. So they see this as something that's very arrogant. Now, let's apply that back to the Revelation text. Clearly, the reason why we have the 12 stars referenced is because in Genesis 37, 9, Joseph is one of the stars. But other than that, you have the 12 stars, you have the sun, and the sun and the moon. Certainly, that's a reference to Israel. So the woman is Israel. Now, notice she gives birth then to a child. And of course, the child that we should automatically think of right away is the Messiah. And I am not, um, by the way, going to refute that. It is the Messiah. But what I'll be arguing is the best reading is it's not just the Messiah... But there's a corporate identity to the child, I believe, that it's the Messiah and his people. And that's why we're going to see later that being caught up to the throne 
is not a reference to the ascension, which would be Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the one who ascended at the ascension. But the term harpazo, the same term for the rapture, will be used in Revelation 12, 5. And what I'm claiming is that the child is, yes, the Messiah, but it's his people. Let me give you a quick reason why we should be inclined to this view. You remember in Acts chapter 9, when Saul at the time before he becomes Paul was confronted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus? Do you remember Saul had been persecuting the church? And it's interesting that Jesus, as he confronts him, remember Jesus is in his resurrected state. He's confronting Saul. And he says to Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Oops, sorry, I just hit my microphone. You would think that he would say, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? But so associated is the church, the flock of Christ, with him that if you harm one of the flock, any one of the individual sheep, you're harming Christ. When Stephen is being martyred, who is depicted normally as being seated at the right hand of God, who is all of a sudden depicted as standing? It's Jesus. Why? Because it's one of his own. So associated with the people of God are we that we can be lumped together in corporate solidarity. For example, we will reign with Christ. The same promises that Christ, are, Christ is given applies to us in Psalm 2. He's going to reign over the nations. So will we. Why? Because we're with him. That's what we're going to see. So the child, I'll be arguing, is certainly the Messiah. And we'll see evidence of this when we get to the next verse, verse 5. But it's also his children that is the church. Let's go to, I'm sorry, yeah, Brian. Just real quick, maybe you could clarify this. When you did the Revelation Bible study a year and a half ago? Yes. Two years ago? Okay. Is, is what you're presenting now and on your YouTube channel, is this information that you've studied other things? Is this additional information that you've learned since? Or if yes. I went back to mine? Okay. Yes, it is. So this is new. Um, it was brought to my attention. I have always been wrestling with it. I never bought into it until there was a scholar named Michael Spiegel, I believe is his name, who taught at Master Seminary. And he presented this, and I think he pre presents a good case. And I'll lay the case out before you, the people of God. And again, if you don't find it to be a compelling case, I'll, I'll hear from you, which I appreciate. So, but yeah, very good question. So this is a Again, I'm not deviating much from my previous interpretation. The child certainly is the Messiah. I'm just adding, I think it's a corporate identity. With, yeah. So let's move to the red dragon. Let's identify the red dragon. We know the red dragon, as I mentioned, is Satan. Because in Revelation 12, 9, remember that's five verses from here, John says that it's Satan. <laughs> so you don't have to be a genius to know that the red dragon is Satan. But let me show you the corporate identity of the red dragon. And before I do that, let me just back up one moment to the woman. One of the reasons this matters as well is because the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, will claim that the woman is Mary. Okay, and again, this shows the absurdity of their interpretation when you realize the reference to Genesis 37.9 is clearly a reference to Israel. Clearly. So we don't have to play games and say, well, maybe the woman is the Virgin Mary. Clearly, it's a reference to Israel, okay? Now, one thing I want to mention about the woman is there's a corporate identity to Israel. Israel isn't just Jacob, one man, but it's the entirety of the nation. So right away, we start seeing there's a corporate identity to the woman. Well, I want you to see that there's also a corporate identity to the dragon because I'm arguing there's a corporate identity to the child. So let's begin by seeing that the red dragon here has seven heads and ten horns. Now, what I want to show you is that these seven heads and ten horns are nations in solidarity with Satan that Satan uses to abuse the people of God and try to thwart the plans of God. Of course, God, being sovereign, is going to use Satan's plan to bring about his plan. So as Bob has pointed out numerous times, God is the one who is the head of his divine counsel. He uses the good angels and even the wicked angels, which are demons, and he uses it to bring about his plan. Amen. But I want to prove to you that these ten horns are ten nations that will give allegiance to the, the Antichrist who is being incited by Satan. 
So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 17, verse 12. Revelation 17, 12. I'm going to show you conclusively that the ten horns here are ten kings. So please turn your Bibles to Revelation 17, 12. Now, as you're turning there, notice there's also seven heads. So let me just mention what the seven heads are. I believe the seven heads are the seven kingdoms that had arisen against the woman, that's Israel, over the course of history. It begins with Egypt, number one. Number two, it was Assyria. Number three, it would be Babylon. Number four, it was the Medo-Persian Empire. Number five would be the Greeks. Number six would be the Romans. And the seventh one would be in the future, which would be Antichrist kingdom, which is a revived Roman state that comes from that milieu. Well, then the ten horns are ten nations that give their allegiance during the reign of that seventh kingdom to the beast. And we see that here in Revelation 17, verse 12. Notice it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. Now, stop there. The one hour there, remember, that's the idea of the hour of trial that we see, for example, in Revelation 3.10. So it's not literally a 60-minute period. It's the short period of time in the 70th week of Daniel. Remember in Revelation 3.10, we've been guaranteed exemption from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world, right? So it's not just a 60-minute period. It's the 70th week of Daniel. So they've been given authority by God, is implied, for that 70th week. But notice in verse 17, skip ahead to verse 17 of Revelation 17. So on Revelation 17, 17, notice we have an explanatory four. It says, For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. There we see compatibility. The doctrine of compatibility is where God is sovereign and yet those who reject his moral will are culpable. The evil kings that are giving their allegiance to the beast are culpable for their immorality, and yet they're fulfilling perfectly God's providential plan. Just like, remember, in Joseph's dream, Joseph had to rebuke his brothers, but he said to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's the same thing that we're seeing here in Revelation 17. Oh, yes, God allows the nations to give their allegiance to the one, to the beast, but he's going to be using it for his purposes. He's powerful. That's the idea. Okay, so the reason I'm raising this is notice the dragon then is certainly Satan, but notice the solidarity with the nations that he's using. There's a corporate identity. So there's certainly a corporate identity with the woman. There's a corporate identity with the dragon. I think there could be possibly, therefore, a corporate identity with the child. Again, it's certainly the Messiah, but is it the Messiah and his people? I think that's a far more likely reading. Now, let me lay that case out. Let's look at the traditional interpretation. And I'm sorry, again, this is small. Um, I don't know why I made it this small, to be honest with you. It could have been bigger. I think I was going to put something more on the slide. and I, But anyway, it's small because it was going to go on YouTube. But the woman is Israel. This is the traditional interpretation. The child is the Messiah. The dragon is Satan. And again, I have no big issue with this, but is it likely that if the woman, Israel, is a corporate identity, that the child would as well? The Messiah plus his redeemed, his people. The dragon certainly is Satan and the nations. Okay, so that's what I'm arguing is that we keep the basic traditional interpretation. We just add the corporate identity with the, the woman, the child, and the dragon. So yes, it's the woman, it's Israel, corporate, the dragon, Satan, and the nations, and the child, it's Messiah, and his people. Now let's keep reading. We have more to read here in our Revelation text. Let's read Revelation 12, 5 through 9. And when we get to verse 5, we're coming to the core text that we're going to be debating amongst ourselves. Revelation 12, 5, notice it says, And she gave birth, remember, this is the woman, so that would be Israel. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness 
where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. I believe, by the way, that's the last three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. Verse 7, it says, And there was war in heaven. Here's Michael the archangel. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, let's begin here in verse 5. And again, we see that the woman, that's Israel, gave birth to the son. And notice, it's very interesting, John says, a son, a male child. Now, the reason I want us to focus on what you see in bold is the term son there, huion, the term son is a masculine noun. The term for male is a neuter adjective. Now, you, I, before you yawn and completely fall asleep, let me explain why I think this may be significant. Normally, in the Greek language, if you're going to modify a noun with an adjective, the adjective has to be the same gender as the noun. So if the noun... Sorry, I get my goggles on again. Notice the noun is the son that's masculine. You would expect that the male would be masculine as well, but it's not. It's neuter. The reason John is doing that is because the same thing happens in Isaiah 66, 7. And what John is doing deliberately, he's breaking a grammatical rule to bring us to Isaiah 66, 7 so that we remember the connection there that Israel corporately gave birth to a son, a baby boy, but it was lit literally a corporate identity. It was an entire nation. And I'll show you that passage. So I believe John is deliberately breaking this grammatical rule to bring us back to Isaiah 66 so that we see the corporate nature of the son so that we can't miss it. We say, why is John doing this grammatical boo-boo? It's to bring us back to Isaiah 66. It's clearly, I think, what he's doing. Okay, so he's deliberately doing that to bring us to the corporate reading of Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 8. And we'll be turning to that in a little bit. But let me unpack some other things about this. Notice, whoever this son is, it's either the Messiah or the Messiah and his people. But notice, the son is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. That is a reference to Psalm 2.9, an exceedingly important psalm. Exceedingly important. Read Psalm 2, understand Psalm 2. Let me explain why. Let me shift books, if you don't mind, to 2 Peter. And I'm going to show you how important Psalm 2 is through this illustration. Do you remember that Peter the apostle was dealing with false teachers in Asia Minor who denied that Jesus Christ was returning. So the debate between the apostles like Peter and the false teachers in Asia Minor was whether or not the Old Testament taught that the Messiah would return and he would reign upon the earth. That was the debate. So the issue wasn't the origination of prophecy, it was its interpretation. The proof of that is seen when you get into 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter says that there were false prophets amongst the people, just as there will be false teachers amongst yourselves. Notice he doesn't say false prophets amongst yourselves. He says false teachers. Why? Because the issue wasn't the origination of Scripture. The issue was the interpretation of Scripture. The false teachers in Asia Minor said the apostles got it wrong. They didn't interpret the Old Testament correctly. Jesus is not returning. Do you know how Peter refutes them? He uses the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was there. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a foreshadowing, a rehearsal of the second coming of Christ. And so remember, as Peter is on the mountain with James and John, to, so remember there's three witnesses. Every fact is established according to Deuteronomy 19 by two or three witnesses. You can't bring an allegation against an elder, 1 Timothy 5, unless you have two or three witnesses. 
Matthew 18, you can't bring an allegation against another Christian unless what? You have two or three witnesses. So there are three witnesses on the mountain. They're apostles. And remember, they hear the affirmation of the Heavenly Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Where he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, that's a reference to Psalm 2-7. The reason that to Peter confirm that Jesus has to return is because Psalm 2 in its entirety is about the reign of the Messiah over the nations. That's what verse 9, that's what it means to rule over the nations with the rod of iron. Think about it for just a moment. In the eternal states, when all unbelievers are going to be thrown into hell, will Jesus need to rule over the nations with a rod of iron? No. Is Jesus currently during the church age ruling over the nations with a rod of iron? No. So if he's not doing it during the church age and he's not going to do it in the eternal states because all unbelievers are thrown into the lake of fire, do you see the problem with amillennialism? Without a future millennial kingdom, where is Christ going to rule over the nations with a rod of iron? Are you with me? That's a big problem, isn't it? Those are the things that I'm trying to point out on our channel. Yes, Bob. Uh, but a lot of people think that he's, he's gradually ruling the post-millennialism. Exactly. Through the church. Right. And I'm reading a book right now that the, the professor that we met, remember when we were in Canada? Yes. He's asking yep. me to read his book and write a um, critique of it. Okay. Is it his book? No, he, oh, okay. he's, it's somebody he knows that he disagrees with. I, okay, good, good. But it's based on the culture wars. We're going to Christianize. And so the Great Commission is to disciple nations. Right. And that's supposed to be going on. Sure. Now, the question is, if you define this to disciple biblically, yes. how do you disciple a geopolitical entity? Right. I see right now we're having a big problem with that one. <laughs> well said. Right, so Bob and I, our position in the premillennial position is much more modest. We do believe that we are discipling individuals. We're, it's like we as Christians are on a rescue mission. We're behind enemy lines, and we're trying to bring as many people to the kingdom as possible by proclaiming the gospel. But what postmillennialism says is that someday, remember in Matthew 7 where Jesus says, wide is the path that leads to destruction, many enter in through it, and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few find it? The postmillennialist believes, without any biblical warrant in my opinion, that at some point in the future that ratio reverses. That in fact we're going to have a Christianized world, and therefore Jesus just simply comes and takes the reins of a Christianized planet. But let's ask ourselves, is that really possible in light of what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, when he says, talking about the future 70th week of Daniel, he says that upon the world has never come such tribulation or ever will. And he says, in fact, if those days not be cut short, no flesh would survive. That doesn't sound like things are heading towards a glorious future here and now. It sounds like things are going to get really bad. So the point is, I don't think the post-millennial has any biblical warrant to try to claim that one day it's the vast majority of the people on the earth that are going to come to saving faith and only a small minority are going to reject the gospel. No, it's going to take the, re the personal intervention of Jesus Christ bodily returning to bring about the glorious kingdom that we read about in the book of Revelation. So thank you, Bob. Thanks for bringing that up. It's a very good point. So this Psalm 2 is very important. Psalm 2 is all about the Messiah reigning over the nations. That gives us uh, identity to who the Son is. It's certainly the Messiah. But as I'm going to show you in later slides, that promise of reigning and ruling over the nations with a rod of iron is extended to every Christian. Uh, I'll cite a passage. You can jot it down. We'll turn to it later. The term that Jesus gives to Revelation chapter 2 verses 26 to 27 to the church of Thyatira, he says them in terms, if you are an overcomer, 
I will allow you to reign with me with a rod of iron over the nations. So Jesus extends the promise to his believers. If we are his people, if we will come to faith in him, believe the gospel, we are going to be ruling with him over the nations. Again, Revelation 2, verses 26 through 27. Now notice here, this child was caught up. That term for caught up there is harpazo. It literally means to be snatched. And that is the same term that is used for the rapture of the church, being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, where we're given our resurrected bodies in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Now, if all we had was the term harpazo, and if all I were arguing was that harpazo probably isn't used for ascension, I'll, I'll show you the other terms that are used for ascension, that isn't the strongest argument because certainly... Terms sometimes can be used in different contexts differently. However, what I think is a strong argument is let's look at the context of this being caught up. Let's back up for just a moment, back to Revelation 12:4. What was dragon, the dragon, which is Satan, trying to do to the child? It was going to devour him. That's one verse earlier. So the dragon, Satan, is trying to devour the child. Let's go to verse 5. Now the child is caught up. It's a rescue mission. Isn't it interesting to note that the ascension of Jesus Christ, remember the traditional, tra traditional interpretation is that being caught up here is the ascension of Christ, Christ alone. But is it likely that the ascension of Christ is depicted in Scripture as a rescue operation? Did Jesus in his ascension need to be rescued from Satan? Or is the ascension one of the greatest demonstrations of victory in the entire cosmos? It's the latter. I'll show you passage after passage after passage in the New Testament where the ascension of Christ is absolute proof of his victory over the demonic realm and Satan himself. So isn't it very odd then that harpazo, the same term for the rapture, is used for the rescue of the Messiah alone, as if he needs to be rescued from Satan when the ascension is always the victory over Satan. That was the clincher for me that said, you know what, the old traditional view needs to be modified. I think the child certainly is the Messiah, but it's certainly a reference here to the corporate identity of his people. His people, you and I, we're going to need to be rescued, that's for sure. We can see that in our day and age now. You, you, you put a pro-life rally on and the FBI is after you, right? I mean, I won't say anymore. You know what I'm talking about. The culture is not exactly friendly anymore, even in the United States, to Christians. No, it's us who are going to need to be rescued from this coming wrath. Okay, now the other thing I want to point out here is notice the woman is going to be protected and nourished by God for 1,260 days. That is a reference to the last three and a half years. This is the same three and a half year period that Daniel 7 promises that the false antichrist, I don't mean a, that's, a, that's redundant. What I mean is a false Christ who is the antichrist. I don't mean a false antichrist as if you have an antichrist and then you have a false antichrist. Like, so you have two of them in a sense. No, I mean the antichrist is going to be trying to harm the saints for that last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Isn't it interesting? That's where the woman, Israel, is going to be brought where? To the wilderness and protected. Let me tell you something that's very interesting, and I'm going to do this in my eschatology channel. In Hosea chapter 2, Hosea the prophet promised that one day God would bring his people into the wilderness. But this time, when he brings them into the wilderness, they're going to... Uh, respond in faith and obedience. Remember, salvation is always by faith alone, but if you really believe, you obey. Hosea chapter 2 promises that there's a day in the future where God will bring Israel into the wilderness. This time they're going to believe. So think about in history, God brought Israel into the wilderness after the Exodus, and in 40 years in the wilderness, they failed miserably. Fast forward to Matthew his gospel. Where do we see John the Baptist meeting the people? 
It's in the wilderness. It's a potential do-over. Maybe now the people are going to get it. Maybe now they're going to respond in faith. Uh, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is so upset with the leadership of Israel, and by extension, the vast majority of Israel, that he says to them at the end of Matthew 23, as he leaves their temple, he says, your house is left to you desolate. You will not see me again until you say, blessed is the one who comes, the name of Yahweh, which is a messianic psalm. In other words, their temple will be abandoned, and they will not see him again until they come to faith. There was not much faith in Israel. They failed in the wilderness again, as it were. In the 70th week of Daniel, what we'll see in Revelation 12 and 13 is God is going to bring the people of Israel into the wilderness one last time. This is the final exodus. But this time in the wilderness, they're going to come to faith. They will trust in the Messiah, and they will be saved. Jesus will establish their kingdom. And that's exactly why Paul links... Remember in Romans eleven twenty six, 26, he says, all Israel will be saved. And he links that deliberately to the second coming of Christ. The salvation of the Israelites will happen one day when they go into the wilderness and God provides for them. This time they do come to faith in the future 70th week of Daniel. Very interesting. Now, notice as this happens, there's a description in verse 9. It says, Satan is thrown down. The serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan. So, by the way, that's how we know the dragon is Satan. Does everyone see that? Okay, so we're not left wondering. Again, let me just stop there for a moment. This is the, one of the biggest issues in the book of Revelation. I cannot tell you how many amillennialists and postmillennialists will say, well, we can't understand anything of the book of Revelation because there's so many symbols. And after all, you can read anything you want into the symbol. I don't think we're given that option at all. Uh, the lampstands, John says that they're the seven churches. Here, the dragon is Satan. That's not very hard. That's why I like it. I'm a pilot. I like simple things. Pull lever down, things happen. Put lever up, things happen. Right? I have to have simplicity in my life, right? So the, Satan is the dragon. That's very easy. The dragon is Satan. Very good. So notice he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Isn't it interesting, as the bride of Christ is brought to the throne room, Satan, who formerly had access to that throne room to make allegations against us, is going to be thrown down. So why this is important is this did not happen at the first coming of Christ, which in some sense would include his ascension. What I'm claiming is this is going to happen at the second advent of Christ. So there are stages in the destruction of Satan. It didn't just all happen at the first coming. It's going to also happen at the second coming. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will. I couldn't fit it all on the screen. This is one of the limitations of PowerPoint. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 12, 10 through 12. Revelation 12, 10 through 12. And I'll show you a little bit more information about how Satan accuses us before the throne room. Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12. As you turn there, I am convinced that in heaven, PowerPoint will be able to hold an infinite amount of material. So Bob and I will be very happy in heaven, won't we? We'll have PowerPoint. And... <laughs> okay, that's extra biblical. You don't have to go by that. <laughs> Revelation 12, 10. Notice it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now... The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. Stop there. Who is the accuser of the brethren? The dragon. It's Satan. He's accusing us right now in the throne room. But why, doesn't have, why don't his accusations have any merit? Because of the first advent of Christ, the finished work of the cross. Jesus nailed those allegations. Um, think about Colossians 2. It talks about the decrees that were against us. What were the decrees that were against us? It was God's moral law. The law that was revealed in the Mosaic Covenant, that stood against us. But So what happens is Satan is saying, Lord, they broke this, they broke this. They, he's laying allegations against us. 
Jesus, according to Colossians 2, nailed that to the cross. So none of the allegations stick, but when we are raptured up, it's as if God says, I won't listen to you anymore. My bride is here. I won't listen to your slander. You go down. And that's it. Satan is thrown down. And I'm sorry, let me just read two more verses and I'll come right to you. Let's keep reading in verse 11. Notice the overcomers. It says, and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. Stop there. How are we overcomers? It's by the blood of the lamb. That's shorthand for the gospel. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we have remission of sins. We have forgiveness. We have vicarious atonement. We have expiation. We have propitiation. We have it all. That's how we overcome. It's not by us doing. It's by us believing. So we overcame by the blood of the lamb because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. Notice verse 12. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Stop there. Do you remember when I taught the book of Revelation, I said there was a phrase that's used 11 times in the book of Revelation. It's those who dwell upon the earth. And I said it's exclusively used for unbelievers. For example, in Revelation 3.10, it says, remember Jesus gives the promise to the church at Philadelphia. He says, because you have kept my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. The purpose of the last 70th week is not the testing of the believer, but it's the earth dweller. And that's why believers are going to be taken out prior to it. So isn't it interesting, the earth dweller, that phrase is used 11 times referring to the unbeliever, but who is rejoicing? Here in Revelation 12, 12, it's the heaven dweller. That's you and I. Doesn't Paul say our citizenship is in heaven? That's exactly right. So we're going to be rejoicing. But notice it goes on to say, woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. Isn't that why Jesus says, unless they, those days be cut short, no flesh would survive? Hell comes to earth. And you and I are seeing the precursors of it, those who want a one-world order, those who want to build Babylon, they are going to build the very system that Satan will rule over, and they'll get their desire. They're working on it. They're working on it. Exactly right. Exactly right. They're working on it. It's in progress. So you and I are going to be rescued. So I just wanted you to see that that Satan that you see here in Revelation 12, 9, he is the one who's currently accusing us but those accusations will stop because after we're raptured, he's thrown down. Okay? Isn't it interesting that being caught up, the rapture of the church precedes him being thrown down? Why is that important? Because I believe when he's thrown down, that's when you have the revelation, as it were, of the man of lawlessness. I believe that actually the man of lawlessness is revealed at the beginning of the 70th week, but at the midpoint... The man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, sets himself up in the temple to be God. Notice the rapture then would precede those things. It would come prior. All we know is it comes prior. That's all we know. We don't know how much. It doesn't tell us. It just gives us huge spans of time at uh, certain points in Revelation 12. But we know the ca being caught up, the rapture, occurs prior to Satan being thrown down. Okay. So let's keep moving on then. What I want to do is talk about evidence for the corporate reading. Let's talk about some points. And again, I'm so sorry it's small. Number one, these are the evidence for the corporate reading. Both Israel and Satan... Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. I'm sorry, Brian. I left you out. My memory's failing me. Real quick, I wanted to say in the book of Job, God asks the dragon what have you been doing and yes. he said i'm going to and fro yes and that's what that's his nature that's what he does he accuses people uh very so good that aside on the uh i wanted to ask on this revelation 12 5 the harpazo yes of the child i i like the way that you add the believers or church in that to yet to come rapture yes. as the child 
was brought up, but we, we see that with, I want to go back to Genesis and the fall and the depravity of man, and then we got the seed war in, in Genesis 3 along with Genesis 6. Yes. So God got the ball rolling, if you will, with a plan for the redemption of, of, of sinful man, which leads to the cross. So yes. he was doing everything possible, the dragon, yes. uh, throughout history to, to thwart that. Amen. Exactly right. So God has the seed promise, Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. And so, in a sense, Genesis fills in those details. We see in Genesis 11 through 12, it's going to come from Abraham. Well, then it's going to come from Isaac and Jacob. And then uh, Genesis 49.10, of all of the tribes of Israel, it's going to come from Judah, the, the seed of the woman. But you're right, Satan is trying to distort that right away and destroy that. So when you say the rescue, some people would say, oh, he had to rescue uh, Jesus. Well, God could have put a stop to this any time he wanted to, but he had a plan. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Yep, there's a plan and and there's a process in doing it. And that's what we're seeing in the book of Revelation is the process. So, for example, sometimes in John 5, 28 through 29, you'll see a summary statement that Jesus is coming to bring judgment upon his enemies and salvation for his people. I'm paraphrasing it. But some people will say, well, that's all the details. You have one judgment that happens in one day. Well, no, Revelation, that's a summary statement. Okay, Revelation is giving us the details and how it unfolds historically. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yes, Peter. Uh, Just a quick question. Um, You made a reference to 1 Thessalonians 4 blank. Oh, yeah, no problem. 417. 417. Yep, and that's where harpazo is used for the rapture. Okay, thank you. Yep, very good. Yes, thank you. Okay, so, um, oh, I'm sorry, yes, Rich. You, you said that the believers will be caught up. Beforehand, Revelation 13, 7, it was granted to him, the Antichrist, to, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Absolutely. So he, me, he's, the Antichrist is going to war against yes. the believers, against the saints. Yep. He'll so, have jurisdiction over them. Right. So what happens, Rich, is remember there's going to be people who come to faith during that time period. And so in the 70th week of Daniel, there are going to be people who come to faith, and they will be martyred for their faith. For example, we see that in Revelation 7.14 where it says these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. It's a process. They're being martyred. And so certainly God is so gracious and good that even during the tribulation period, people will be coming to faith and they will be martyred because of their faith. And that's why when you get to Revelation chapter 20, it has to answer the question, well, wait a minute. What about the Christian who came to faith during that seven years, but they die because they're martyred, remember, for their testimony of Jesus? Well, by the way, the amillennials, some of them will say, well, their resurrection is them coming to faith in Jesus. Well, that's laughable because they were martyred because of their faith in Jesus. So the resurrection can't be a spiritual one to saving faith because they already had saving faith. That's why they were killed in the first place. But what it's answering is how do these people enter into the kingdom? And Revelation 20 says they'll be given their resurrected body as well. So don't misunderstand that as you see the Antichrist go after Christians and believing Jews, like the 144,000, the rest of the children, as it says, these are people that come to faith in that time period. Had they had faith prior, they would have been raptured at the inception of the 70th week. They also would have been partakers of the promise, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Okay, does that make sense? I I do believe that what we're talking about here is the church. He's going after the church. Oh, He's absolutely. going after the saints. Absolutely, because as soon as you believe, you become a member of the church. But again, these are people who miss the rapture, and they're coming to faith, and they're being martyred during the last seven years. But even Bob DeWay argues that um, there's going to be a great hardening in Daniel's 70th week, and, and people aren't going to be coming to faith. They're going to see, they're going to know from whence these judgments are coming instead of repenting. They'll raise their fist to God out of arrogance, and they won't repent. They'll be well, Bob blasphemers. and I have the same view. The view that we have is that it's always going to be the minority report of those who do come to faith. 
in the Messiah. So there's going to be a very small minority that come to faith, just as there is now. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few find it. You're going to have the same thing in the 70th week of Daniel. Just to, those, just to yeah. put in the last two sentences, that, that that is debatable, that that their saints that the church actually is still there and the Antichrist does go after the church. You know, in other words, the rapture happens later. Well, let me, let me throw a passage that I think shows that the church will be removed prior. Jesus himself says so in, in Luke chapter 17, verses 26 through 31. The precedent in Scripture, he gives us two people and two families. He says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Remember, he uses days, plural, for the singular parousia coming in Matthew 24, 37. That's why we know the parousia is a multi-day event. The coming of Christ is not a one-day event. It's the 70th week of Daniel. And Jesus likens the 70th week of Daniel to the days of Noah. And he says, as Noah was removed, then the flood came. Then he switches to Lot. And he says, as it was in the days of Lot, it will be the same in the days of the Son of Man regarding his return. And he shows that Lot is removed. In fact, he says, on the very day that Lot was removed, brimstone came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. So isn't it interesting, the view that you're holding would be in direct opposition to Jesus, who is saying that the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. So what I'm saying is my view is consistent with that, And yet I hold to that God is so gracious, he's willing to save people even during the 70th week so that they can still become partakers of the glorious kingdom. What I would like to know is in what authority are you saying that the people of God are not exempt from the wrath of God in light light of Jesus' clear teaching in Luke 17, 26 through 30? That's what I'd like to know. So, I, again, I, it's, um, yes, Susan, back there. Susie. I think for me, um, a wording that helps with that is the church is removed. Amen. And after the tribulation, those who were doubtful it takes that kind of a thing to finally move their heart, and then there are some new believers. And they'll still be martyred, but there, there isn't any pre-trib believers getting moved into the trip because that's what the cup was. Jesus took the wrath. Amen. Well said. And some are going to need something like the trib to move their heart. Yes, well said, Susie. And yes, it's always the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Spirit, or by the Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. So absolutely right. The Spirit will use those things. They'll bring some to faith. Let me just point out again in Revelation three ten, the promise is that if you have kept his word, meaning you're a believer, he will keep you from the hour of trial. Isn't it interesting that the hour of trial is the time? It's not that he's keeping us from an event. He's keeping us from the time of the event. So think of a math teacher says, if you get A's in all your tests, you don't have to show up for the final exam. I will keep you from the hour of the exam. Would you believe that you have to sit through the exam, take the exam, but you're going to be protected from the results of the exam? No. You'd say, hey, the promise was I'm exempt from this. I don't have to show up. That's the idea, the hour of trial. That's why I've labored this time and time again, the verb tereo, keep, and the preposition ek, from. Together, they always mean in the New Testament, preservation on the outside. So there is no way that a believer can enter into the time of the trial. Now, what is that trial designed for? Remember, the rest of Revelation 3.10 says, to test those who dwell upon the earth. That phrase is exclusive for the unbeliever. So if your view is correct, Rich, it would have to add both the heaven dweller and the earth dweller, the testing, correct? Because the time of the trial is to test those who dwell upon the earth. That's the design of it, not those of us who have been brought up to heaven. Let me throw one more thing. John 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus makes a promise. He says... 
that he is going to make a place for us in heaven. And where he is, remember, he's going to come again, he says, I'll receive you, Paralambano, to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. What's interesting is that's clearly a reference to the rapture. He's coming again, and he's bringing us to himself. Well, where is he preparing the place? Well, it's in the Father's house, which is in heaven. Think about post-tribulationalism. Post-tribulationalism says that the rapture occurs, but we just continue down, and then we enter into the kingdom that's upon the earth. Well, if post-tribulationalism were true, where do you have John 14, 1 through 3 fulfilled? When are we brought up to heaven? Where is it? There's no time for it. You meet the Lord in the, in, in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, and you come right to earth according to the post-tribulationalists. But John 14, 1 through 3 says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. You should see the weeping and gnashing of teeth that post-millennialist, amillennialist, post-tribulationalist go through to try to explain what that means. It means what it says. Jesus was going to the heavenly Father. And in the heavenly kingdom, he's going to prepare a place for us, and he's coming again to receive us so that where he is, we're going to be there also. Well, that's exactly what happens at the rapture. Again, we're seeing this. Harpazo, we're caught up to the throne. Satan is thrown down. It's all over the place once you see it. Yes, Ron. Um, so a little Greek here. The church is always, is it not, referred to as the ecclesia? The assembly. That's what ecclesia means. Okay, so are the tribulation saints ever referred to as the ecclesia? You know, um, th that term isn't used for them, but I, I, don't, I don't really argue that way. I know some pre-tribulationalists will say, well, the church isn't mentioned from Revelation 4 on. I just I don't argue that because what I say is we're clearly given exemption, Revelation 3.10. There are clearly people who are going to come to faith during this time period, and they will be part of the church. It's just that they are going to be martyred. Okay, so that's why today is the day of salvation. Remember, the darkness comes in the 70th week of Daniel. The 70th week of Daniel is the time of God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 promises we have exemption from that wrath. We have not been destined to wrath, but to obtain salvation. That's not a reference to hell in 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Do you know how we know that? Because six verses earlier, he's talking about the day of the Lord trials that happen in the 70th week. It happens while their people are saying peace and safety, sudden destruction comes upon them. That's the opening seal judgments in Revelation 6. So 1 Thessalonians 5.9 is promising exemption for those who believe now. Now is the time to believe. Because once the 70th week of Daniel breaks forth, the wrath of God is poured out. So I don't argue that way, Ron. Um, I know there's other good pre-tribbers that, sorry, hope I'm not too hard on the equipment there, uh, that they would argue that. I just don't argue that. Yep. So I, I hope that helps. But let me, um, I'm gonna, I just wanted to give the summary real quick. Do I have time? I got three minutes. Let me just read. Um, I'll just read through this real quick, and then I just want you to kind of ruminate on this until next time. Let me give you the evidence for the corporate reading. Uh, both Israel and Satan with the nations are corporate identities. Again, why not the child? Why not the child? I think it's a better reading. Number two, both Revelation 2.26 through 27 and Revelation 12.5 apply to both Christ and the church, corporate identity. That's true. The reigning over the nations is something not just for Christ. Obviously, he's primary. We wouldn't be reigning without him. He is the one who reigns, but we're with him. And that's a promise that's been given to all of us. That's a corporate reading. Revelation 12.5 alludes to the corporate identity in Isaiah 66.7. I'll be showing you that later. So clearly there's a corporate identity in the works here. There's a strange grammatical construction reinforces John making the connection to Isaiah 66. Again, why does he modify a masculine noun with a neuter adjective in the Greek? Well, he's doing it to link us right to Isaiah 66. He's doing it deliberately. And again, the reason why is because of the corporate reading of Isaiah 66. Harpazo, in Revelation 12, 12, I begin the term for rapture, being caught up, is the term used for Christ rapturing his church. It would make good sense if that's the meaning here. Number six, the ascension of Christ view. Remember, that's the traditional view, that being caught up in Revelation 12, 5 of the child is the ascension of Christ. That view makes no sense in light of the rescue imagery in Revelation 12, 1 through 5. And to me, that's the most powerful argument. 
The ascension of Jesus Christ is never a rescue operation from Satan. It is always depicted as his victory over Satan. So again, the context of Revelation 12, 4 through 5 is the rescue of the child. It makes no sense to say that's the ascension of Christ. This has to be, in my opinion, a reference to the rescue of the church, the rapture. So with that, that's my... Again, i got tons of data we'll get into more, but that's the preliminary things I want you to be thinking about to say, hey, is there merit in this reading uh, to, to read the child again as Christ plus the church? Yes, Brian. We'll close after Okay, you. correct me if I'm wrong. There are, in, in the scene from heaven, John, okay, uh, in the throne room, yes. there's three garments mentioned. One is the 24 elders are wearing white garments. Before him are those that have been martyred during the tribulation. They're wearing white robes. The bride of Christ is wearing fine white linens, i.e. wedding clothing. Therefore, you couldn't have the church in the seven-year tribulation period because they're not wearing wedding clothing. Sure. Um, Yeah, again... (laughs) No, no, it's... The, the thing that I, I like to say is, let's just read the text for what it says. When there are people who come to faith, they're coming to faith. They're going to be believers that come to faith in the 70th week. The promise now is to avoid that period at all time. The beginning of the 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of God. It is the very day of the Lord. Remember the day of the Lord says while they're seeing peace and safety, sun destruction comes upon them. The opening seal judgments, what's the first thing removed? Peace. Peace and safety. So we know it's the opening of the wrath of God. The point is we've been promised now, today is the day to believe. Today is the day because you don't want to become partakers of that wrath. Yes, God is so gracious, he will save some, even during that time period. But the point is, do you want to bank on that? Do you want to go through the worst time period ever that was so bad, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would survive? Today is the day to repent and to believe in Jesus. That's one of the big messages from the book of Revelation. So thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for our time together. I thank you for the wonderful love that the saints have for you and your word. I pray for our perseverance, Lord, that we would continue to not just be hearers of the word but doers. Um, Lord, I pray for Bob as he preaches today out of John. I pray, Lord, you'd remind us of the significance of what you've done by making us born from above and that we as believers can partake in your glorious supper all because of the shed blood of your son. We thank you for Bob. We pray that we'd have ears to hear and to understand. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.